We're turning tonight to Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs 17. And we're going to read together from verse 15 of the chapter. I'd like to thank again the Reverend Harris for the words of welcome tonight and the opportunity to be along. Thank you for coming also. And I do realise it's been a busy week for many of you. And to come out night after night, we really do appreciate that. And um, it's my privilege to have been here. My, my pleasure to renew fellowship with so many that I've known for so long. It does make you feel old when you realise that some of the young people that I knew back 15, 20 years ago now have children of their own. That does make you feel very old. But it's been nice to see them in the meetings, and we trust that all will bless you in the days to come. Let me thank those who have been providing supper for me every night. Uh, you've gone home and put the kettle on by yourself and there's always been tea for me here and I appreciate that immensely. I learned when I came to Mourn not to refuse tea and for a number of, number of years I suppose I was doing that. I would go out visiting sometimes at four or half four in the afternoon and there'd be tea offered and, and I knew Heather would be making dinner at half five or so so I would I would turn down tea and then we had one of the former ministers back for maybe a 40th anniversary dinner and in the course of his comments he said he discovered early on in his ministry he was offending the ladies by not taking tea and I felt horrible because I've been doing that for a couple of years so I tried to stop that and every time I was offered tea I tried to take it then and then I'd offend Heather because I didn't want the dinner she had it was easy offending her and uh, I, could, I could sort that out a little easier and so I appreciate the fellowship and I appreciate the suppers each night as well. And to be back here just to meet with you and to fellowship again, it has been a great blessing. And I trust the Lord will bless his word to our hearts again tonight. The theme that we're looking at tonight is not the easiest theme. It's help for distressed parents, dealing with situations where our children are not walking with God or our family members are not walking with God. And what does the scripture say to us in relation to that? What does God say to encourage us and to help us in times like that? So we're going to read tonight from Proverbs 17 and verse 15 down to the end of the chapter. He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. Wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it? A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety in the presence of his friend. He loveth transgression that loveth strife, and he that exalteth his gate seeketh destruction. He that hath a froward heart findeth no good, and he that hath a perverse tongue falleth into mischief. He that begetteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow, and the father of a fool hath no joy. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. A wicked man taketh a gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. Wisdom is before him that hath understanding, but the eyes of a fool are in the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father, and bitterness to her that bear him. Also to punish the just is not good, nor to strike princes for equity. He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. 
Amen. We'll finish there at the end of that chapter. And we pray the Lord will bless his word to our hearts. There are three verses that really deal, or two verses that deal with our subject tonight in this portion. Verse 21, he that begetteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow, and the father of a fool hath no joy. And then verse 25, and that's the verse we'll focus on, a foolish son is a grief to his father, and bitterness to her that bear him. With our Bibles open there, let's seek the Lord together in a word of prayer. We'll ask the Lord's help and the Lord's blessing tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy grace that finds us once more in Thy house this evening. We thank Thee for the privilege of being with Thy people, of gathering around Thy precious word. We thank Thee that the entrance of Thy word giveth light. And Lord, we pray tonight for the entrance of Thy word into our hearts to guide us and direct us, to encourage us, to instruct us. Though, Lord, we might know in times of difficulty, in times of trial in our families, we might be those who are able to rest upon the Lord and to find our comfort and our consolation in our Saviour. We pray, Lord, for the families of this work and the families in our congregation in Kilkeel, the families in all our congregations. Lord, thou knowest the need is great. I know us, Lord, the burdens of heart and the concerns upon parents' hearts and souls. Those concerns, those burdens are heavy. We pray, Lord, tonight as we think about thy word that thou would come and encourage and strengthen. Be the lifter up of our heads. Lord, oftentimes our heads can hang low and our hearts can hang low. And we pray tonight that thou would lift up our heads and lift up our hearts. And we pray that what we ponder tonight from thy word would be a source of encouragement and blessing to us. We pray for the youth of this congregation, the little ones, the infants just born, and Lord, the little toddlers and the teenagers, that you'll come alongside them and remember them, save our children early in age. And Lord, we pray for young people who perhaps are way out in the world tonight. We pray for them. That Lord, I would have mercy on them. And Lord, even at this time, even tonight, that it might please thee, Lord, just to arrest them wherever they are. Bring back thy word that has been taught to them. Make them uncomfortable in their sin. And Lord, save them by thy grace. We pray tonight for thy help. We pray, Lord, thou would intervene in our families. Even some of us who have brothers and sisters in their 50s and 60s who are not yet saved. Lord, have mercy upon them and save them by thy grace. So answer prayer for us tonight and bless us in this meeting. Fill me with thy spirit. Give help in the preaching of thy word. Give help in the hearing of thy word too. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Last night we considered some words in Psalm 127. And when David wrote that psalm for his son Solomon, he spoke of the happiness or the joy that is associated with children. He reminds Solomon the children are a gift from God. A gift from God in the sense that God is the giver of life. And he's the one who ultimately and in his sovereignty oversees the bringing of children into our families. We also noted, and David notes in that psalm, that children are to be directed to God. He talks about arrows in the hand of a mighty man. And he says, so are children of the youth. And little ones are to be pointed to Christ just as arrows are directed towards the target, towards whatever object that that happens to be, so our children are to be directed to the Saviour. 
They are to be brought up in the fear and nurture and admonition of the Lord. They are to be taught the things of God and directed to follow him and be faithful to him. Then he adds another statement in Psalm 127. This time in verse 5 he says, Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. Now that verse doesn't mean that only those who have children can be happy. But it does mean that children can bring happiness into our home. They can be a great blessing to their parents. And so what you have in Psalm 127 is a picture of family life. It's one side of home life. The joy, the happiness, the blessing of parents and their children. But there's another side to that. And I say that because here in Proverbs 17 and verse 25, Solomon says, A foolish son is a grief to his father, and bitterness to her that bear him. The picture in this home, described in these few words in this short verse, is altogether different. There is grief, there is heaviness, there is bitterness instead of gladness and instead of happiness. And the reason for that is explained in the verse because the son or the child is marked with foolishness. A foolish son is a grief to his father. Now, the word foolish in our text here is not speaking of someone who is innocently silly or mischievous. It's a word that means much more than that. It's a much more significant term. It speaks of sinful foolishness. It speaks of wickedness. It's a word that describes a person who goes into the ways of the world, who goes far away from God, someone who breaks the law of God, someone who thinks that sin is nothing to be concerned about. The word relates to those who lack knowledge, and especially the knowledge of God. The foolish man or the foolish woman is one whose life is marked with wanton disregard for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're sinful in their ways, sinful with their words and sinful with their works. Their whole way of life is marked with sin against God. And the point that Solomon is making here is that a son or a daughter who is like that brings grief to his father and bitterness or sorrow to his mother. Verse 21 carries similar words here. He that begetteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow, and the father of a fool hath no joy. Proverbs 19 and verse 13, Solomon says, A foolish son is the calamity of his father. Those are, those are striking words in these verses of Scripture. He talks about grief here. He talks about sorrow. He's talking about calamity. A wayward child, or in some cases, wayward children in some homes. Children who turn away from their Christian upbringing and forsake the ways of their godly parents bring great heartache into the hearts of those parents. The parents of such children, children who are foolish in regard to the things of God, the parents of such children are filled with fear. They're afraid lest their children would fall into even deeper sin than they're already engaged in. Afraid 
that their son or their daughter will suffer some terrible tragedy in this life. They live with the fear lest their children will encourage others to go in the ways of the world and afraid lest their son or their daughter whom they love live their life and come to death without Christ and face eternity without the Saviour. Godly parents fear for their ungodly children. This was Job's fear. Even though there's nothing taking place in Job chapter 1 that that speaks of his children doing wrong. But he was fearful for them. He was fearful for them. And we're told that in verse 5 of Job chapter 1. It was so after the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Why did he do that? Why does Job so earnest and rising early and offering sacrifices, coming to worship before God, And thinking about his children as he does so, he says in his heart, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Job was afraid lest his children would sin terribly against God. Sin in their hearts and curse God in their hearts. So he remembered them as he came before God in worship. Not only is there a sense of fear, there's also a sense of sorrow. Deep, deep sorrow in the heart of a Christian parent whose children or child has gone astray. The American Puritan Cotton Mather said, Godly parents have such a love for God in their own souls that it must be a terrible trouble unto them to see any of their children herding among the haters of God. No Christian parent who is striving to walk with God can watch their son or their daughter go into the far country without being grieved in their own heart. One of the Puritans said, the parents' graces cause them to mourn for their children's sins. Their saving knowledge makes their hearts bleed to see their children scorn and despise the glory which they see in God and Christ. A Christian parent who's walking with God and watches their children do anything but walk with God will be filled with a sense of sorrow. They will groan. They will groan that their children love sin and hate God. They will groan inwardly, sigh in their soul. It will disturb them. They will be heartbroken. When Absalom was leading a rebellion against his father David, David wept over him. He wept over him. His heart was broken as he thought about that. And how many Christian parents weep over a wayward son or a wayward daughter. Maybe quietly, maybe on their own. Maybe a mother who is just so burdened that she won't even let her husband see her weep over her son or her daughter. But she will do it. Maybe a father too. 
weeping over the children, the sorrow and the groaning that that brings into their hearts. And then there's also the problem with guilt. Because Satan, this is one of Satan's key weapons against Christian parents. He will fill that Christian parent with a sense of shame and a sense of guilt and a sense of failure and a sense of despair. He wants to plunge that Christian parent who's going on with God and striving to live for God's glory. He'll want to plunge them into the depths of despondency and rob them of their joy in Christ. The devil doesn't back off us when we find ourselves in circumstances like that. The devil doesn't think, well, those parents are going through a hard time. Therefore, I'll give them some slack. He doesn't. He comes against Christian parents. And he would fill them with a sense of failure and a sense of despair. And so sinful children bring grief and sorrow to their godly parents and the devil uses that to bring a sense of guilt to their hearts. Parents looking on, doing the very best they can, yet watching their children throw away, throw away the truths of the gospel. Wasting opportunities to come to Christ and walk with God. Parents watching children misusing the best years of their life. And engaging in things that can never satisfy them. That can never meet the need of their soul. Trying to find satisfaction in the things of the world. Even though they're never going to find that satisfaction there. And those Christian parents watching on. Watching on feel so helpless. And feel so worthless. And it gets... Harder, perhaps, as children become more independent and maybe won't listen to admonition, won't listen to a conversation anymore with parents. To take the words of Proverbs 19 and verse 13, it's, it's a calamity. It's a calamity. The parents are left distressed. If you're familiar with the account of Esau. In the story of Esau when he sold his birthright and then he lost the blessing and he goes in a godless way and we're told in Genesis 26 and 35 that he married into the Hittites. Recklessness, recklessness as he does that and that waywardness as he marries into the Hittites, that waywardness we're told in, in Genesis 26 35 was a grief of mind to his parents. A grief of mind. The marginal reading is that it was a bitterness of spirit to them. It was a bitter thing in their souls that their son Isaac would do such a thing. It deeply affected them. Brought them deep, deep trouble. And wayward children have that impact on believing parents. So how do we view such a thing? What can we do in such a situation? What does God say to us in that kind of position? What does God say to parents who know and love him? What what truths can we think upon and glean from his word that will be a benefit to us? Well, that really is the theme I want to come to.
tonight, help for distressed parents. The first thing I think we need to do is sadly acknowledge that many children of Christian parents reject the gospel. Sadly, many children of Christian parents reject the gospel. The problem of ungodly children in Christian homes is one which has affected and continues to affect many true believers. When the situation arises in a home, Satan makes much of it. He'll come to those Christian parents, he'll come to a Christian mother and a Christian father, and he will suggest that no other Christian home has ever suffered anything like this. He makes it out that it's very strange and very unusual, even an abnormal turn of events that you have raised children who are no longer interested in the things of God and are not walking with God. He sows the idea that no other Christian father, no other Christian mother has raised children who have turned away from God. And Satan does that for a number of reasons. He does it to attack the parents' assurance of their own salvation. To make them question their own faith in God. He does it to plunge those parents into the depths of despair. The devil cannot rob us of Christ. But he can impact our joy in Christ. And he does it too to cause those Christian parents to think that God has forsaken them. Or is in some way displeased with them. And he's punishing them by having their children go in a wayward direction. Those are the kinds of suggestions that the devil throws at us. Those are the kinds of things he would have us to believe and think upon. He argues that this is a punishment from God, that God must be angry with us. And this is why this has all befallen us. He would have parents, the devil would have parents in this situation, to think that God has finished with them. You see, the devil isolates the Christian. He wants to isolate the Christian. And he wants to make him or her think that no one else has ever experienced such a thing. And therefore, how can their salvation be real? And how can their God be faithful? But the devil's a liar. This tragic situation of ungodly children in Christian homes is neither new nor sadly uncommon. In given directions for grieving over ungodly children, the Puritan Edward Lawrence said this. He said, consider, he's talking to parents who are facing this very thing. He says, consider that this is an affliction that ordinarily befalls God's dearest children. You must not think of this as if you were the first godly parents of ungodly children, or as if herein some strange thing happened unto you. This affliction, he says, this affliction is ordinary and is consistent with the saving and distinguishing grace of God to them, and that is a rod that is usually laid on the lot of the righteous. There have been numerous, numerous godly parents, Christian fathers, Christian mothers, whose children have given them cause to cry and groan before God. Edward Lawrence, who made that statement, he wrote a booklet 
entitled Parents' Groans Over Their Wicked Children. He dedicated that book to his own children. This is what he said. There are some of you, talking about his own children, there are some of you who have made me the father of fools. It's true, of course, that God saves many children of saved parents. He graciously grants household salvation to some. It's true, he moves in the homes of his own people. He brings their children and their children to himself in salvation, but not always. Grace is not hereditary. Salvation doesn't run in families as of right. Born again parents do not by nature produce born again children. And while God does save many, there are many children who are not saved. Not saved at the same time as others are. And consequently there are many Christian homes, many Christian parents with unsaved children. History, history is full of examples. Think of Adam and Eve. They've been described as the first godly parents in the world. When their first born, the first son was born, Eve firmly believed that she had gotten a man from the Lord. Genesis 4 verse 1. She thought her firstborn was the promised saviour, Cain. But how mistaken she was. For instead of Cain loving God and worshipping him on the basis of the blood sacrifice, instead of Cain walking with God in righteousness and living a useful, godly, beneficial, holy life as she and Adam undoubtedly hoped he would, he became a murderer. He murdered his own brother, living and dying as an outcast before God. Noah. The preacher of righteousness, a man who found grace in the eyes of God, even though he lived in a world full of sin, was an obedient and godly parent. But he had three sons, and one of them was guilty of a sin that's too gross to go into detail with. Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And when God met with Jacob and saved him, Esau continued in his wickedness. And in Romans chapter 9, we read God saying, Jacob, have I loved Esau have I hated. Aaron had two sons who perished before God in the midst of their sin. Eli had two sons who worked in the temple, but they were ungodly men. Samuel had it said unto him in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 5, Thy sons do not walk in thy ways. If you read the account of Samuel's life, it's as Samuel begins his ministry and goes on the circuit of his ministry that the people then begin to lament after God. There have been years, years of barrenness in Israel. But Samuel the prophet is used of God to bring reformation into the nation. Yet his own sons did not walk with God. The list goes on and on, doesn't it? King Jehoshaphat, King Josiah, King Hezekiah, all godly men, but their sons did not follow in their footsteps. It's not uncommon. Sadly, it's not uncommon for godly parents to have ungodly children. It's not a new thing. How can you explain that? 
I think there are things to think about. Number one, the natural sinfulness of all our children. The natural sinfulness of all our children. Our children are born as sinners. They are born in rebellion to God. That's, that's their natural condition. That's their natural character. That's the natural course they're going to take. We know, we, we know the words of Psalm 58 and verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. Psalm 51. David's psalm. He says in verse 4 and 5. Against thee the only have I sinned. And done this evil in thy sight. He's talking here after his sin with Bathsheba. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest. And be clear when thou judgest. Behold I was shapen in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. And notice what David is doing there. He's an older man, but he's tracing his sin. He's tracing his rebellion, his breaking of God's law, right back to his natural corruption. Our children are born as rebels to God's. And what is true of one child is true of them all. They're sinners by nature. Our children are sinners by nature. You know, that's something that we are inclined to forget. We can understand it theologically. We read that verse or those verses and we can understand it theologically. And we are very quick to understand it in regard to someone else's children. We can see that in them very quickly, very easily. But it's very hard to comprehend it personally. We like to think that our children are different. We do. We like to think that our children are are not as depraved as somebody else's by nature. Because they're our children. They are our children. That's, that's my son. That's my daughter. She, she or he is not capable of doing that kind of thing. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. So you have to think about the natural sinfulness of our children. We ought to think, too, that we cannot give grace to our children. Salvation is all of God. Godly parents cannot save ungodly children. We can't change their hearts. We can't give them grace. We can do so many things for our children. We can bring them under the sound of the word. We can teach them the word of God. We can pray for them. We can ensure that they're under sound instruction. We can do everything we can to make sure they're, they're brought under the, the means that God has given to us. But we're, we're powerless to save their souls. We cannot turn their hearts to God. Something else we need to remember is that God is sovereign in salvation. He is sovereign in all the affairs of our lives. And he is sovereign in all the affairs of our homes. He's also sovereign in the salvation of the lost. And there have been many cases in history and right to this present day where God in his sovereignty has saved children from Christian homes. And that also in his sovereignty he has ordered it in his sovereignty that there are unsaved children in our homes too. I know there are times... I know there are times when Satan 
would have you believe that no one else endures this kind of situation. That this is a burden you carry all on your own and no one else has ever faced it before. One of the Puritans said, though you have ungodly children, you must not be discouraged as if you were altogether singular in this affliction. It's something to bear in mind. But there's a second truth here tonight. And it is that Christian parents with ungodly children may still enjoy and glorify God. Christian parents with ungodly children may still enjoy and glorify God. It's a very, it's a very severe trial to have, to bear. I've sat with many parents, ministers do. I've witnessed my own parents in this kind of situation. It brings the deepest despair to their hearts. It causes the deepest anguish in their souls. They would rather suffer sickness than see their children go away from God. They would. It causes many sleepless nights. Many tears. It affects so many aspects of life. And Christian parents can, can rarely ever put it to the back of their minds and forget about it. They can't. They live with it 24-7. It can lead to the greatest discouragement in your Christian life. It can. What it must not be allowed to do is drive us from following Christ and drive us away from looking unto him as the author and finisher of our faith. Turn over to Psalm 61. David is wrestling with this. He's wrestling with Absalom's rebellion against him. This is the context of this psalm. David, remember, has brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. He was encouraged to bring him back, and he did. And then Absalom began to steal the hearts of the people. And he had gathered a mob around him, and David had to go into exile, and he has to go across the Kidron Valley and way out of Jerusalem and leave the palace, and all of those things are happening. And he realizes that Absalom has an army, and David's going to have to have an army and fight against him. And all of these things are in David's mind. And it's breaking his heart. Look at what he says in Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed. He talks there about being at the end of the earth. He's not talking geographically. He's at the end of himself. That's what he means. He's nowhere else to go. He has nowhere else to go. His son Absalom has rebelled against him. And David feels the weight of that. He feels the crushing blows of his own, his own son rising up, his own offspring rising up in rebellion against him and in rebellion against God. And he says, my heart is overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. But what does he do? He prays, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. Do you see what David is doing in verse 3? He says, Thou hast been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. He's looking back. 
He's looking back over his life. He says, thou hast been this to me. Thou hast been a shelter. Thou hast been a strong tower in the past. You've never failed me, Lord. You've never cast me off. You've been all of that for me. He's talking in the past tense in verse 3. But in verse 2, it's in the present tense. Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. And a wayward son or a wayward daughter can bring sorrow and anxiety into a home. But let it be a trial that draws us closer to Christ. Let it be a trial that draws us closer to Christ. What do I mean by that? Let me suggest that we should be thankful for the grace of God in our own lives. We should be thankful for the grace of God in our own lives. How often have we not used the statement, there go I but for the grace of God? We've said that when we look at someone who's in open sin and open rebellion against God. We've, we've said that. But that's true of us in every aspect of life. It's true of us when we look at our children going wayward and going away from the things of God. That would be us were it not for the grace of God. That would be us were it not for his saving mercy in our lives. Paul, Paul says this. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And so as we, we have to watch our children go away from God and, and, and rebel against him. We ought to be thankful for God saving and keeping grace in our lives. We didn't save ourselves. We don't keep ourselves. It's the Lord who does this. And David says in 2 Samuel 23 verse 5. Even though... There is terrible trouble in David's household. Terrible rebellion against God. He says in 2 Samuel 23 verse 5, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Although my house be not so with God, he thanks God for God's mercies to him. Dear believer, thank God for his mercies. If your children are going astray, thank God you have a, a godly wife at your side. Thank God you have a godly husband with you. Thank God for the day he saved your soul. Thank God that there's mercies for your children. Thank God that the Lord has promised, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There are mercies in the, the darkest days of our Christian experience. There are mercies for us. Mercies that overflow. You know, the psalmist says, and this is true every day of our lives, he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Not just in the good days. So if you're in that circumstance tonight, dear believer, thank God for the mercies he's given to you in your life. Let me suggest too that we should be careful regarding our own sin. Parents can sin just as their children do. And it causes us a grief of heart. But let us grieve over our own sin also. As we grieve over their sin, Grieve over our own. When David was fleeing from Saul, 
and having to keep one step ahead of him and Saul's engaged in a wicked, wicked rebellion against him. David cries out when he comes to Samuel. He says, what have I done? What have I done? He's talking to the prophet. He's talking to the servant of God. And he says to Samuel, what have I done? Why, why is this happening? Why is Saul after me like this? He used the sin of Saul as a means or a reason to examine himself. And if we see rebellion in our children, if we see sin in their lives and their disinterestedness in the things of God, if we see them showing a rebellion towards coming to God's house or being around God's word, careless with the gospel, let us make sure we're not developing similar habits. We can learn from that. We can learn from that. So as we grieve over their sin, let us grieve over our own sin. And as we would want them to be careful in their lives, let us pray that God would help us to be careful in our lives. Furthermore, be watchful over your home. Such, such a situation calls for particular diligence in our homes. To have wayward children, wayward son or wayward daughter, perhaps coming into teenage years with all the challenges that come just with that period in their lives, as they try to find out who they are and what life's all about. And, and we've all been there. If you have children at home, you've all gone through this. We come into their teenage years, they question things. They can become argumentative. They can fight against the principles in the home. They can ask, why do we do this? Why can we not do that? We've all, we've all been there. We've all been there. And the danger and the temptation then is to change things in the home. To move away from perhaps being in the Lord's house just so often. To leave off the family altar. To miss things, to change things. And great care needs to be taken when we have those kind of things. We need to continue on with God, maintaining the family altar. I was in the home of a dear Christian brother some months ago. I was over preaching for him. And every morning at 8 o'clock they had family worship. And there was one son, the eldest son, wasn't showing much interest in the things of God. But the family all gathered for family worship. And they all read verses from the scriptures. And the father prayed. And then they all went their way, went to school, went to work, whatever else was going on the rest of the day. Sometimes, sometimes the oldest boy wasn't able to be there. Or something happened and he was doing something, he couldn't be there. But family worship went on. Family worship went on. Prayer was offered. The word of God was read. It puts an immense pressure on parents. It puts an in intense strain within the home. But dear believer, don't let it drive you from the Lord. Don't let it drive you from the Lord. And also be encouraged because while things may be difficult... Your son or your daughter is still in the day of grace. So in the midst of these difficult, difficult trials that we face as parents, 
Let us still live for God's glory and enjoy him. The Lord hasn't forsaken us. The Lord hasn't cast us off. The Lord hasn't turned his back on us and abandoned us to our own devices and just left us to muddle our way through the rest of our Christian lives. We have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us in Hebrews 4, we can come to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the hardship of all of these circumstances that prevail in our homes at times, let us remember our chief end is to still glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And rest, rest in his all-sufficiency. The Lord will provide. We thought of that the other evening. The Lord will provide. He'll provide grace for you. He will. Underneath us are the everlasting arms of God. How often have we not read that verse to someone in times of trouble? How often have we not read the verse that's on the wall here to my right-hand side? As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people. Even when our children are rebelling against us and against him, the Lord doesn't abandon his children. One third thing here, third thing here tonight, the godly parents must never cease to long for the conversion of their own godly children. Godly parents must never cease to long for the conversion of their own godly children. In a word, don't give up. Don't give up. Continue to pray. Even as children grow older and come to their late teens and into their early 20s and maybe move out of home, maybe move away to university, move out of home, eventually get married, set up their own homes, and they're out from under our supervision, out from under our roof, and we don't have the same influence over them as once we did when they were young. Don't give up, but don't give up for them or up on them. Continue to pray. Continue to witness as the Lord enables you. Continue to live before them a godly Christian life as the Lord enables you. Don't cut them off. And most importantly, trust God. It may be. It may be when the Lord takes you home. That the Lord will save them. The Lord may answer prayer after he takes us home to glory. So don't, don't give up. Don't give up. There's a story told of a man called Luke Short. Luke Short was traveling with his parents to America on one of the pilgrim ships. And he listened to the preacher preach a sermon if any man love not Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Look short as a young boy, listened to that sermon, and he sailed off to America with his parents who were Christian people. And he was an unsaved young man. Arrived in America, land was provided for them, they farmed the land, did very well. The family did very well in America. But in the due course of time, his parents passed away. And Luke Short was left in America with, I'm not sure he was married or not, I don't think he was, but he grew to
to be a very old man. In fact, he grew to lose a hundred years of age. And one day, as he was a hundred years of age, he went out into the farm just to think about what he had and the vastness of the property. And he sat down on a, a huge boulder on the farm in America. And the sermon he heard as a child on the boat, before the boat sailed for America, came back to him. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day, Luke Short was converted to Christ. His parents were already gone. That's why I say tonight, don't give up. Don't give up. There is surely a word here to our church families too. Maybe you don't have children. Maybe you're not married. Maybe your children are walking with God. Well, thank God for that. Thank God for that. But we do have a responsibility as a church to pray for our children. We do. They may not be your children, but we have a responsibility to pray for the children in our churches. To pray for our young people. I look at the young people in Uma, and I, I assume they're the same as young people all over the country. They face huge challenges. Huge temptations. A world that's just pressing in against them at every possible turn. And we need to pray for them. We need to remember them before the throne of grace. Not just in a general way, but by name. And to get alongside our young people. Get alongside them and encourage them. Encourage them. And point them constantly to the Lord. William R. Newell, who was born in the late 1800s and died in the mid-1900s, is remembered very fondly as a pastor and an evangelist and a Bible teacher, an author, a conference speaker and a writer of that great hymn that we often sing at Calvary. Years I spent in vanity and pride, that hymn. He's remembered as a humble man, a very humble man who recognized that it was only by the grace of God he was able to accomplish anything in his life. But he was a very troubled, very wayward teenager, William Newell. And in desperation, his father, who was a Christian man, his father and mother were in desperation what they would do with him. How could they control him? How could they guide this rebellious, wayward teenager? How could they guide him in the, in the ways of God? And so the father decided to write to the president of the Moody Bible Institute, and he begged him to allow his son, who wasn't saved, William Newell, he begged him to allow his son to come into the seminary. The president wrote back and he said to him, well, college really is only open to serious Bible students. The president was very reluctant to let this unsaved young person into the Bible college. I suspect he was afraid that a bad influence would spread among other students. But he finally agreed he finally agreed to allow William Newell to come in and be enrolled with the proviso that William Newell would meet with the president every day and he would take his studies seriously. And so the deal was done. The arrangements were made. 
And young William Newell went to the Moody Bible Institute. He met with the president every day. And he was in class for all the studies that the students were taking. Eventually, in spite of all the father's prayers, it seemed at times as if he was taking one step forward and three steps back. But they continued to pray for him. The college president was persistent in his rules and he kept them as best he could. Eventually, William Newell trusted Christ. And some years later, he came back to Moody Institute as a teacher to teach other young men the things of God. In 1895, he put his testimony into the words of the hymn. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. And how many young people, how many children in Christian homes could say the same thing? Years, years they've spent in vanity and pride. Caring not, caring not that Christ was crucified as the substitute for sinners. No interest in the things of God. But just as the Lord saved that man, called him into his work so the Lord could save your daughter or your son and their testimony would be mercy there was great and grace was free pardon there was multiplied to me there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary so don't give up don't give up continue to pray for them think of the prodigal son in the far country, wasting his father's substance with riotous living. The Bible says he came to himself. The Lord worked in his heart. And that young man came home. And I pray that the Lord will do that in the families of our congregations. I think of, I think of my own family. And I think of my own twin, brought up exactly as I was brought up. Went to the very same meetings that I went to. Heard the same gospel preaching that I heard. Sat at the same family altar that I sat at. Had the same parents as I had. And I'm saved and he's not. Yet. But I pray the Lord will save him. And that our family circle, and my, my, my parents are both in glory. But I pray yet that we will all be in glory, the entire family circle, saved by the grace of God. So, dear parent, let me encourage you. We have a mighty Savior who is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by Him. So, may God save your children. May he bless them. May he use them for his glory. May the Lord do a mighty thing. We often talk about outreach and new families coming into our churches. We long for that. We long for that for sure. But let's pray for internal growth in our churches. The salvation of our own children. 
the blessing of our own young people, that God will work in their hearts. And I trust the Lord will bless these few thoughts to our souls tonight, for Jesus' sake.